morning. morning. I want to say welcome church, but I can't because we started this new series last week, What is Church? And I said, church is not a building, so I can't welcome you to the building if I say welcome to church. It's not a program, but I want to welcome you to our morning program because I can't say welcome to church, welcome to our program. And you said church is people. So if I say welcome to church, what I'm really saying is welcome to each other. So welcome to each other. You're the church. We're the church together. Uh, And I love being part of the church and part of the church together. Uh, Things happen when we come together that don't happen when we're home alone. We can come around parents who want to dedicate their child. We can worship together. I worship alone during the week, and I try to lift my heart to the Lord in various ways during the week, but it's different when I come here and we worship all together. There was a moment today where we were doing the, um, the song was called No Wonder, I think, the last song we did. And uh, Elizabeth was playing the saxophone and the worship team was playing and it, there, we weren't singing yet, but then uh, we, the, uh, Emmanuel and the, and the worship team led us to start singing while the, the team was still playing and uh, it did something to my heart. Right there, I just, I felt like my heart started flipping and it led me to worship the Lord with you, together. That's what happens when we come together. That's why we say we are the church. It's a different thing when we're together than when we're off alone. Um, we've been using this passage, and I'll use it every week. By the time we're done with this series in a few weeks, this passage should be ingrained in our minds. I'm saying this is a description of what church should look like. It contains the essential elements that make Church, if church isn't program or buildings or structures or style, what is church? The answer is in this passage. It's the first gathering of followers of Christ after he died, rose from the dead, ascended into heaven, and was seated at the right hand of God. Right before we read what we're going to read, 3,000 people decided that Jesus was Lord, committed their lives to him, and became his followers. So this is a pretty big group of people that we're reading about. Acts 2 Verses 42 through 47. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So over these next coming weeks, we're going to look at so many of the elements that are listed in here. The one we're going to look at today is the first phrase that says they were devoted, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. And there's a phrase in there that I'm going to go back to every week that says they were filled with awe. Because so often, when I have conversations with people about this passage, the thing that seems to be really hard to get our minds around is this feeling of being filled with awe. And people say, I want that in my church experience. I want that in my church community. I want a sense of awe. I worship a mighty God. And I want to see his hand working. And this says that they were filled with awe at the miraculous things God did. But I think there's something we can do. There's a part we can play. That leads to that feeling of awe. I don't want to take the credit from God. He is the object of our awe and worship. But he calls us to certain behaviors and actions and mindsets that we're going to see in here that create this sense of awe. 
And I, I will mention today that this devotion to teaching leads to a sense of awe. So devotion, I, I, I pointed out this word when we were in the book of Colossians back in the fall. There was a passage, a verse that says, uh, be devoted to prayer. And I said this word devoted was the same word Jesus used when he asked for a boat. He was teaching at the Sea of Galilee and the crowds were coming in and he asked for a boat in case he had to step into the boat to give room to teach. And he, he basically said, I want a boat devoted to me. I want it right here, ready to go in case I have to step into it. That's what this word devoted means. It's the same word. This is the same word, same Greek word right here. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching. They were committed. They were attending to constantly. They were continuing in the word. They were waiting upon it. They were persisting, persevering. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching like that boat was to Jesus. They were there all the time. It said they met together daily in the temple courts. They were hungry to be taught. They were hungry to receive. They were eager to know what the disciples would teach them about how to follow Jesus. This was all new, and they were trying to figure it out. They immersed themselves in this word. The church today is still guided by the word of God. This book. This, this book that looks so regular, with a regular cover on it that just says, Holy Bible. This Bible, to me and to those of us here at Calvary, it is God's inspired word. It is the final authority on all matters of faith and practice. There is no other book like this on this planet. We're going to look at a couple of passages about what this book says about itself. It says it's good for teaching, correction, rebuking, training, and righteousness. That is God-breathed. That is actually God's word. That it isn't a religious manual. It's not a textbook. It's not a book of good spiritual practices or best practices. It's not a manual. This is God's inspired word. Let's look at the passage that that says what this is. 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17 says this. All scripture is God-breathed. And it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. I want to leave this up here while I go through each one of these, um, make a comment about teaching, abusing, correcting and training in righteousness so we can see those words. So we'll keep this slide up here for a little bit. This says first, all scripture is God breathed, that God breathed his life into this. This is God inspired. When I open it up and read it, I am reading words that God himself breathes life into. It speaks to my heart. I'm not just studying a textbook. I'm letting God speak to my mind and heart. And it says it's useful for teaching. I I love teaching. I've taught the Word of God for years and years and years. I like teaching lots of things. I like teaching new skills. I like teaching people how to do things. But I love teaching this Word. I love teaching this Word because this is God's Word. And something happens when this Word is taught. It opens minds. It touches hearts. It changes lives. When I teach this word, when I open it up and I teach the word of God, I can see the hand of God moving. I see change on people's faces. I see change in hearts and behaviors. It's it's amazing to me. Sometimes when I teach the word of God, I feel like I'm standing next to myself watching God send his word out into the hearts of people. And I say, this is a holy thing. But it isn't just about the teacher or the teaching. 
It's about what's being taught, the Word of God, but it's also about how it's being received. The passage said they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. It doesn't say much about their teaching. It says a lot about the devotion of the people. I was having a conversation a while back with my good friend. He's, he's also my, the leader of my men's group, Scott. And he said, how are things going you know, at, at Calvary? How are things going for you? He was just checking in with me. And I said, it's such a blessing to me to be part of this community and to be there. And I said, and, you know, every Sunday morning I teach the Word of God, and something just miraculous happens every week. I can't explain it. It's this Word of God connects with people in such a supernatural way. And he said, that's because people are receiving it. And I said, that is so right. That's exactly why. It's because of the way you receive this word. I've taught this word in various um, circumstances, various settings to various groups of people. And there is a huge supernatural difference when people receive the teaching or people resist it. I've taught this word of God to people who have not wanted to receive it. And it's like this. It's like teaching the word to this wall. It feels like it doesn't go anywhere. This is the word of God. But people didn't want to receive it, so it didn't explode like it does here. I open this word here, and I teach it out. And you're so eager to receive it. You're so ready to bring it into your mind and heart. You come here today and say, what is God going to say to me today? Not what's Rich going to say to me today. It's not about me. This word of God does its work because you receive it, because you're devoted to it, because you're trying to hear from God every Sunday morning, and a wild supernatural thing happens. I, I often leave here on Sunday mornings with a sense of awe. Like I said, God, I can't believe what happened here Sunday morning. And part of it is, is people come to me and say, what you taught today was exactly what I needed to hear. What you said today spoke right to my life. Are you reading my mail? Did you open my diary this week? How did you know to say those things to my heart? And you know what I say? I didn't know. I don't know. That's the Holy Spirit opening the Word of God because you were receiving it. And it gives me a sense of awe. And part of that sense of awe, hold on to this point because this is where I'm headed by the end of this. That sense of awe comes from us sharing those stories with each other. Us saying, here's what God did in my life, and someone else hearing it, and together we jaw drop and say, wow, God did that? Last week, I went to, um, I sat in a uh, class during the adult discipleship hour, and I sat for an hour under really good, solid teaching. I listened to the Word of God being opened, and it touched my mind and my heart as I sat there and listened. I teach the Word of God, but I need to be taught, too. I need to hear it opened up. I need to hear it directed into my life. We need to be receiving and devoted to this teaching, it says. Oh, yeah, I asked you to leave this up, and I got all carried away on teaching. It's useful for rebuking that if somewhere along the line, one of us, we get into a, a place in our life where our life is so out of whack that we need to have this word of God come into our lives and say, you're way off track here. This word of God points out what's right and wrong, what's good and evil. It is our standard. It is our comparison to say, am I living the way God wants me to? And sometimes for correcting, which is maybe a softer version of rebuking. There have been many times in my life where I've just gotten a little bit off course. Not terribly, not in need of a real rebuke, but just a correction. The word of God corrects my course. 
It says, you should be traveling this way, but you're traveling a little bit this way. Let's bring that back in line. Let's get that back on course. The Word of God is useful for correcting, and it's useful for training in righteousness. What would that look like, training? Uh, We can switch to the next slide now, Deuteronomy. Jim mentioned this just a few minutes ago during the dedication. It is we train ourselves with the use of this book, and we pass this devotion on to the next generation. How do we do that? Jim read this. I'll just read it quickly. It's right here. Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. Basically, this passage says, be an example, live it out, and the next generation will see that. We train them not by what, so much what we say, by what we do. We pass this word of God, this devotion to the word of God, on to our children and their children by example as we live it out. And the Bible says the word is living and active, Hebrews 4, 12 through 13. The word of God is alive and active. It's sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. The word of God is like a surgeon's scalpel. It pierces right to my mind and to my heart. And it does the work of a master surgeon in my life. It teaches me. It rebukes. It corrects. It trains me. It's living and it's active. As I said before, this is not a religious manual that we open and read when we want to get some um, advice or self-help or some religious guidelines. It's living. It's active. It's God-breathed. Every time I open this book, it speaks to me in a different way. I can read the same passage that I read recently, and it speaks to me in a new and fresh way because it's God's living word. Regular books don't do that for me. God's word does. And here's what James says about it, that it's like a mirror. James 1, 22 through 25. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. This is so simple and so practical. It's like this. I look in the mirror in the morning and my hair's a mess. And I got some kind of splotch here from last night's dinner. And I say, I probably should comb my my hair and wash that off. But I walk away from the mirror, and I forget. And I go through my day with my hair's a mess, and I got the splotch on my face. That's what James is saying here, is that we could do the same thing with the Bible. That we could open it up. It's like a mirror. It says, love those who are mean to you. Be patient. Don't be quick to be angry. And like a mirror, I say, ooh. I should do something about that. I should practice a little bit more patience. I should maybe take a deep breath before I respond sometimes so I'm not responding in anger. I should make a point to do something kind for that person who's not kind to me. 
That's how the mirror works. I look in the mirror and it, it shows me things about myself. But I could put it down and walk away and say, I just read I should be more patient and, and not be quick to anger and, and forget all about it and go through my day impatient and angry with messy hair and a splotch on my face. And James is saying, if you're going to treat it that way, what's the point? What's the point of looking in the mirror? What's the point of looking in the mirror in the morning? If I see the splotch on my face and my hair's a mess and I walk away and don't do anything about it, I might as well not have a mirror. I might as well not look into it. The mirror is useless. But James says, this book is not useless. This book is useful. It's useful if we use it. It's useful if I, I look in this mirror and say, oh, yeah, I, really should, I really should try to be kind to that person who's not kind to me. And then I go through my day remembering it. I looked in the mirror this morning, and it said I should try to be kind to the person who's not being kind to me. And I'm remembering, now it's useful. It has taught me. It has trained me. It has spoken into my life. You know, you could have mirrors. How many of you own mirrors? How many of you own more than one mirror? You can have mirrors all over your house. You can have them on the walls. You can have them in your compact. You can have one on your, your visor, on your, on your vehicle. If you never look in it, what's the point of having a mirror? All right, here's the trick part. How many of you own Bibles? Come on. How many of you own more than one? All right. Here's the thing. If you never look in it, what's the point of having it? Now, I don't mean that in a judgmental way. I don't know who who here reads their Bible and who doesn't. I'm just trying to make a point. In the same way, if you have a mirror and you look in it and, it and you use it, the mirror is useful to you. If you never look in it or you look in it and you never do anything, the mirror is no use to you. You might as well not have one. James is saying the same thing with the Bible. If you have a Bible, look in it regularly and let it reflect back to you and speak to you and let it be useful in your life for teaching you and rebuking you when you need it and correcting and training in righteousness. So there's a very subtle thing being said here. The passage we read said they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. But James is saying it's more than just learning new things. It's more than just acquiring more knowledge. It's more than just increasing the database. It's about our response to it. It's really, here's the word, it's about obedience. It's about obedience. This is what Jesus taught. When Jesus taught, you open any gospel, you go to any place where Jesus was teaching. He never said, now sit down, class, we're going to learn some more things that you can put in your data bank, write in your notes, and take home and file away. He never taught like that. Every teaching of Jesus spoke to the mind and the heart, but it was all about drawing people into life change. It was all about matters of the heart. Jesus went through the head, but here was his target. The head was the pathway to the heart. He never stopped here. He kept going until he touched people's hearts. That's what the Word of God should do for us. That means obedience. That means our response. Let me read what Jesus said here about it. In John 14, 23 to 24, he said, Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. Anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. Now, if we just take that really quickly at face value, we can totally misinterpret it. It could sound like this because here's how it works in our world. If you love me, you'll do what I say. If you love me, you'll do that. 
If you really love me, you're going to do that. And it can be manipulative and controlling that way, right? You want to to show me you love me? Do what I'm saying. It can be commanding. That's not how Jesus is saying this. That's not at all what he means. He's not saying, if you love me, you'll obey me. That's not our Jesus. What he's doing here is he's inviting us into life. He's saying, if you love me, you'll live the way I'm asking you to. You'll live the way I'm directing you to because I came to give you life to the full. Here's how you have life to the full. If you love me and you want to follow me and you want to be like me, do these things. And you'll have life to the full. He's inviting us in. He's not doing this. The best I can do in this world to try to understand that is think about my relationship with my wife. I love her. I want to do the things that help our relationship. I want to do the things that encourage her and build her up, that please her and make her happy. Not in a manipulative way, but in a way that builds our relationship. I don't want to do things that are going to disappoint her or make her sad or damage our relationship. She never comes to me and says, if you love me, you'll obey me. If you'll love me, you'll do this thing. That's not how our relationship works. We love each other, and we try to do the things that would please the other. In this life, that's the best I can do to understand what Jesus meant when he said, if you love me, you'll obey me. If you love me, you'll live the way I'm telling you to live. Not because it's good for him, because it's good for us. So there's this obedience piece that sometimes we bristle at. Sometimes we don't like the word obey because we don't want to be controlled. We don't want to be told what to do. We want to decide what to do. I want to be in control. Don't you tell me, obey me. Sometimes in the back of my sinful fleshly mind, that's how I respond to the word obey. we got to get past that because when Jesus calls to obey, us to obey, first of all, he's God. If he calls us to obey, he has the right to do it. But if he calls us to obey, it's because if we do it his way, it's going to be better. And I want to add this thought in today. Obedience is the ingredient that produces that awe. Yes, it's God's miraculous signs. I'll keep saying that. It's God's miraculous doing. But our part is obedience. If we're obedient to what God calls us to do, it will end in awe, I promise. If we remove the obedience from it, and God tells us to do something, and we don't obey, there's no awe. The thing doesn't happen that God had planned to do through us. And you might not believe that. You might not be there with me yet, because I've had more time thinking about this, maybe. I am convinced that our part in this equation that ends in awe is obedience. And I want to tell you a couple stories to make my point, that obedience is where the awe comes from. I want to tell you the story of Moses and the rock and the water. Now, many of you have been around church a long time. You probably know. How many of you know the story of Moses and rock and the water? Great. I see your hands at home, too. We know Moses and the rock and the water. How many of you know that it didn't happen just once but twice? There were two occurrences, two different occurrences of Moses and the rock and the water. And they're very different. And they teach us an important, powerful lesson about the miraculous work of God, our obedience, and it ending in awe. So I'm going to kind of tell a little bit and read a little bit because they're long stories. Moses is leading people through the desert in the area of Mount Sinai. He has rescued them from the hand of Pharaoh. 
remove them from slavery. God has miraculously delivered the people. They're wandering through the desert. And you know what they start doing? You're not going to believe this about a group of people. They start complaining. Moses, it's hot out here. (laughs) Thirsty. Moses, there's no water. This is a desert. Moses, why did you take us out of Egypt where there was plenty of water to make us wander around in freedom in this desert with no water? They're grumbling. They're complaining. Moses goes to God and he goes, what am I going to do with these people? They're thirsty. They want water. And I don't have any water to give them. And uh, here we, we jump into Exodus 17, verses 5 and 6. It says this, The Lord answered Moses when he asked, Go out in front of the people. Take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff which you struck the Nile and go. I will stand there before you and the rock at Horeth. Strike the rock, and water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did that in the sight of the elders of Israel. He went to the rock. He struck it with his staff. Water came gushing out, and everyone drank. Do you think there was a sense of awe there? Once they got their thirst satisfied, people went, water from a rock. That was amazing. That was God. God did that. Moses also obeyed. Moses went to the rock like God said. He called the elders out like God said. He hit the staff, the rock with the staff like God said. Moses' part was obedient. What if Moses walked away and said, that'll never work? God hit, the, hit a rock with my staff and water will come out? If he had decided not to do it, we wouldn't have gotten to the place of awe and people still would have been thirsty. But there's more to learn here, especially from the second time around. So the people are still wandering through the desert. They're still getting hot. They're still getting thirsty, and you might be surprised, they start to complain again to Moses. Moses, we're thirsty again. This is a desert. It's hot. Why did you bring us out of Egypt where we had plenty of water to drink, to wander around in this desert? And Moses goes to God again. He goes, what am I going to do with these people? They're thirsty. They want water. Here's God's response in Numbers 20, verses 8 through 11. Watch for the difference. He says to Moses, take the staff, you and your brother Aaron, gather the assembly together, speak to that rock before the eyes, before their eyes, and it will pour out its water. You will bring water out of the rock for the community so they and their livestock can drink. So Moses took the staff from the Lord's presence, just as he commanded him. He and Aaron gathered the assembly together in front of the rock, and Moses said to them, listen, you rebels, must we bring water out of this rock? Then Moses raised his arm and struck the rock twice with his staff. Water gushed out, and the community and their livestock drank. How is this story different? There's an obvious answer here. God said to Moses, go to the rock. In the view of all the people, speak to the rock. Moses was supposed to say, rock, in the name of God, give us water. And water would have come out. What did Moses do? He took his staff after he called everybody rebels, and he smashed the rock with his staff, and water came out. He was not obedient. Now, in God's grace, he had water come out anyway. But the key here was Moses did not obey. He kind of did what God wanted him to, but he didn't do it God's way. He did it his way. Have you ever done that? Have you ever felt like God was leading you to do something? He put it on your heart to do something. And it doesn't actually make sense. It might not be the most logical thing to do. It's a little bit risky. And because of that, instead of doing it exactly the way God asked you to do, you do it your way. You try to do what God asked you to do, but you do it in a more sensible way. 
And what happens is you end up without that sense of awe because you pulled the obedience out of it. That's what Moses did. He removed the obedience from this story. Water still came out. There was not a sense of awe, and I'll tell you why. There's a little bit more to learn from this story that's not obvious in the passage. If you understand the geography of the two areas they were in, when Moses was in the area of Sinai with the people, and they were dying of thirst, and God said, strike the rock, strike it with your staff, that area was made up of granite. Granite is hard rock. There's no water in a slab of granite. So for Moses to hit that staff the way God said and have water come out, that is nothing short of miraculous. There's no other way to explain that except God brought water from a rock. That would produce some awe, wouldn't you think? The second time around, they were in the desert of Zin. The rock formations in the desert of Zin are not granite. They're limestone. Limestone is porous. So on the rare occasions when it rains in that desert, the limestone collects water. The water pours into the porous limestone. Limestone holds water. Limestone also has horizontal platelets, like um, veins, uh, shelves made of zinc. And when the water runs through the porous limestone and hits that rock, which is not porous, it puddles up. It pools up. It collects inside there. And water, doing what water does, it starts to seek the lowest part and sometimes finds its way out on the, on the side of a, a limestone rock. And as the water runs, it carries with it minerals from the limestone. And as it runs and pours out, it deposits those minerals and it makes mineral caps at the end of that passageway. And that mineral cap holds the water in. So you actually get a storehouse of water inside this limestone held in by this mineral cap that hardened there. Shepherds knew this. Shepherds knew this as they brought their sheep through the desert. They would go to the limestone. They learned how to locate and identify those mineral caps. When they took their staff and cracked the mineral, staff, the mineral cap, guess what happened? Water came out. It was a very normal, ordinary thing to do that all shepherds knew how to do. Moses was a shepherd for 40 years in the desert. I think he had gotten really good at identifying those mineral caps. He knew right where to hit the rock. He knew there'd be water in there because he probably had done it a hundred times when he was a shepherd. So what's happening here? Moses did it his way. Moses did it completely by his own understanding. He didn't do it the way God did. Let's look back at the passage just again. We'll put it back up, Numbers 28, if it's still there. Um, God said, verse 8, Take the staff that you and your brother Aaron gather, and gather the assembly together. Speak to the rock before their eyes, and it will pour out its water. You'll bring out water for the community so their livestock, they and their livestock can drink. So Moses took the staff from the Lord's presence, just as he had commanded. He and Aaron gathered the assembly together in front of the rock, and Moses said to them, Listen, you rebels! Must we bring water out of the rock for you? Did you catch that? Not God is going to. Must I do this? Must I... And he hit the rock at the, at the mineral cap. And he brought water out all on his own. He did it. He took the glory. He took the credit. He did not obey God. Isn't that interesting? The first time, water from the granite was miraculous and people's jaws dropped. Second time, people went, yeah, Moses was a shepherd. He knew where to find his water. 
No awe, no glory. The key ingredient, obedience. Obedience. I've got to tell you a really quick story before we wrap up and bring the um, worship team back up here um, about obedience and how, how awe is produced. So I, I mentioned to you before that Heidi and I also have a ministry where we try to support and encourage and coach and counsel other people in ministry. We pastor pastors is what we do. We shepherd shepherds, people in ministry. Husbands and wives in ministry together. We coach them, we love them, we counsel them, we meet with them. But we also do retreats with couples. We will, we will meet with a couple, we'll go away just with the two of them and the two of us, and we'll spend time together with them, and we love on them, we pray for them, we, we counsel if they need it, we listen, we, we get our arms around, whatever they need. But one of the things we, we love to do and we believe God has called us to is we try to lavish on them when we're away. Uh, we buy really good food. We try to cook really good meals. We don't let them lift a finger. We serve them. We feed them. We try to remind them how loved they are and that their God wants to lavish on them as children of God. We think God has called us to do this. Because what we know about people in ministry, this is, I'm going to make an old reference. How many people know who Popeye is? I just had to check. Um, I heard it said this way, that people in ministry have a serving arm like Popeye and a receiving arm like olive oil. It was a good picture for me because there's a lot of truth in that. When you're in ministry, you give out a lot, but you don't always get served back. So we try to do this. We go out and we, we just buy great food. We did something we would, we'll never do again. Back in the fall, we lined up two retreats in one week. So on a Sunday, I left here. Heidi and I went on a retreat with a couple starting Sunday afternoon to Wednesday. Thursday, we caught our breath. We did another one Friday to Monday morning. I left only long enough to come here at Calvary and went back to that retreat. It was a lot. But we went shopping for food for that whole stretch, both those retreats, Trader Joe's, Costco. We were all over, like buying all this really great food. We get it all in the car, um, steaks and salmon. And, and we were like, we're going to love on and lavish these couples. Heidi's driving. I'm adding up the receipts, $496. We're like, whoo-hoo, that's a lot of money. Uh, maybe we should have done hamburger and tuna instead. Of <laughs> but that's not what God called us to. That's not what he called us to. We said, no, we reminded each other, no. God wants us to just lavish and love these couples so they'll know they're dearly loved children of God. Barely got the receipts counted in those words out of our mouth, and I got a ding on my phone. Someone made a donation to our ministry. Guess the amount? $500. We spent $498.36, and God rounded up to $500. That produced awe, didn't it? Did it just produce a little in you? That's how it works in community. So these 3,000 people who were seeing these miraculous things, maybe all 3,000 saw one at the same time, but I tend to think that some of them saw something amazing happen and they told other people, and some of them saw something amazing happen and they told other people. This is what happens in community. When we listen to God, when we obey Him, when we do what we think He's asking us to do, even if it doesn't make sense, even if it's risky, even if it's going to cost me, if I do it, God comes through in a bigger way than I can ever imagine, and then there's a sense of awe. And then I tell you about it, and you tell me about it, and we share the sense of awe. Where does that come from? Where does that come from? Obedience. Obedience is the pathway to seeing the mighty hand of God do the mind-boggling amazing. We have seen it over and over and over and over, and I'm sure you have too. I'm going to call the worship team up here. I'm almost out of breath. Um, uh, 
And while they're coming up here, I'm just going to give us a time to pray. I want you to think now, uh, quietly before the Lord, is there an area in your life where Jesus is calling you to obedience, to something taught from his word, where you've been reluctant or hesitant, or maybe you don't fully understand? Just take a moment and say, Lord, I'm willing. Give me the courage and the faith and the strength and the perseverance to do what you're asking me to do. Take that moment and pray now, and then the band will, the worship team will wrap us up.